Thank you for the good singing. Please be seated. And if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me one more time to the book of Romans. I think one more time, just so you know, uh, that is my plan. Um, Romans chapter 15, I'd like to read to you from verse 17 as uh, we consider a little more of the theme of the day, this worldwide, this universal mission that we all are participating in in our own way. Let's uh, read together from the Word of God, starting in verse 15, excuse me, verse 17, or we'll read in verse 17 down to verse 29. Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God, for I dare not to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and in deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel where Christ was, uh, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered in coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to see you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them, and indeed uh, they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we pray that that same blessing would uh, also abide upon us this evening as we turn to your word and pray that this mission, this uh, great worldwide, this universal mission and calling would be able to uh, take root in our lives and bear fruit in new ways. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a t-shirt around that says, uh, I work for commission, the Great Commission. And I like that because Christians indeed are part of that Great Commission of Christ. We are all Christ's ambassadors. And God has called us all out of darkness and into his marvelous light, in part that we may declare his praises to the world as the kingdom of priests that we are. Indeed, he says, whatever you do in word or in deed, wrote Paul elsewhere, do all to the name in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And again, a few verses later, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. Well, there is a, a great calling upon each Christian in the world. In all that we do, in various ways, we are part of this mission. Some of you are ordained mothers. 
ministering to the Lord by raising a holy seed. Some of you are rather teachers. Some of you gifted in evangelism. Some of you more in faith and prayer and so forth. James Stewart, late of New College, Edinburgh, uh, wrote, To accept Christ is to enlist under a missionary banner. It is quite impossible to be in Christ and not participate in Christ's mission to the world. The concern for world evangelization is not something tacked on to a man's personal Christianity, which he may take or leave as he chooses. It is rooted in the character of the God who has come to us in Christ Jesus. Thus, it can never be the province of a few enthusiasts, a sideline, or a specialty of those who happen to have a bent that way. It is the distinctive mark of being a Christian. Now, to illustrate to you, Dr. Howard Hendricks told of being on a flight once where there was an obnoxious man raising a stink about every minor grievance, even though most people would have told the guy where the exit door was. Uh, each time the flight attendant uh, 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 spoke with him, she responded with remarkable kindness and grace. After watching this for some time, Hendricks uh, called her over and complimented her on her good attitude with the difficult man. And he asked her name so that he could commend her to the president of the airline. He was taken aback when she replied, oh, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. She had it on her uniform and on her name tag. Y you don't, Hendricks sputtered. No, she explained. I work for Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. <laughs> you see, uh, whatever we do, we are doing it to the glory of God. And God has called us to be people on a mission in all things and in every way. Paul had a very special role to play in that mission, to say the least. As he's writing this letter, Paul is nearing the end of what is nowadays called the third missionary journey. He's also, as we read here, been organizing a collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem, among the churches that uh, uh, were uh, mostly Gentile, there would be a representative to join him from Philippi, one from Thessalonica, one from Corinth, and so forth, to bring a gift of money from the largely Gentile churches into Jerusalem to minister to the suffering saints there who needed the love and support of their brethren. Verse 29 here sounds as if Paul was just looking forward to and expressing to have a big sigh of relief when his visit to Jerusalem was concluded and he could at last return to his work, travel to Rome, spend a little time there, being renewed perhaps in the fellowship of the saints of that church that he had longed to visit before heading on to Spain and to new frontiers and territories of ministry. But you know, the best laid plans of mice and men do often go astray. And so I'd like to consider what it is to have uh, as some translations put it here, a holy ambition. What it is to have a holy ambition. What it is to recognize that in that ambition, his will is our peace. And that no matter what we do, that we do it for him. It's my basically my three points, which I'll repeat. But considering this great mission, Paul's role and our role in it, um, we see that Paul had a holy ambition. He had a holy ambition. Paul was commissioned, of course, originally by the Lord Jesus himself, the risen Christ, on the road to Damascus, where it was said to him in Acts 26, 
the Lord speaking, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, the nations, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance or a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul received a, a calling straight from the, the risen Lord to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But he says that all this time he has had this particular desire that he might go and preach Christ where he's unknown, unnamed. That is to say, where nobody's ever heard of Messiah, where there's no Jewish synagogues, no expectation. He wanted to build a new way, not at any other man's foundation. He, he wanted to start fresh. And where did he get that ambition, as the NIV and the ESV translate it here? He, he said he's made it his aim. It could also be in the sense of an ambition here. Where did he get this, this passion, this desire? Well, of course, he had the general calling directly from Christ to be an ambassador to the nations, but the crucial answer is this link in verses 20 and 21 here. I have made it my aim, or some of you have my ambition, to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it's written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand, quoting Isaiah 52, 15. So Paul had a holy ambition. Where did he get it from? Well, generally, he got it from his own personal encounter with the living, risen Christ. And this is also where we receive this great general calling, this calling in whatever we do to be part of this great mission or commission. Our Meeting with Christ is, of course, not necessarily as dramatic as on the Damascus Road while we're going to kill Christians or anything like that. But uh, that, that general calling is ours just as it was Paul's as a result of meeting Christ. But, but just as Paul had this general calling, and then, and then as he searched the Scriptures, he came upon this passage in Isaiah 52 that says, yeah, this is really what I want to do to preach where Christ is not known, where he's not named, that, that this verse may be fulfilled in my work to whom he was not announced. They shall see, and those who have not heard, they shall understand this completely unreached people group, even again, apparently by the Jews. Well, likewise, our ambition to serve the Lord in any particular way can come, generally speaking, from this encounter with Christ that we've had, but then it is to be formed and guided by the written word of God. Paul is modeling for us here what we also might do if we are to gain a holy ambition. Throughout this letter, Paul has taught us in very clear and concrete ways what to believe about essential things in this letter, what to believe about man and his condition in sin and God's grace and the path that it has taken to deliver man from his guilt, to transform him or her into new creatures in Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ, why we are to believe in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, why we are to look to him and where, where we should find the power to surmount the, the guilt and power of our sin and live to the glory of God. These the great themes of Romans. 
He's also taught us how we should behave as Christians. He's given us very particular commands according to what standards we ought to conduct our affairs and therefore uh, live to God's glory. So very clear elements of faith. This is what you are to believe. Very clear commands of duty. This is how you are to obey. But, like everyone else, Paul then had to make his plans and chart his course forward in life somewhat in the dark. That is to say, despite all the faith and all the obedience that he's just said, Paul and we are kind of in the same condition that that we must take this general truth and search the word and, and make some particular application to ourselves in light of it and pray that the Lord might bless those plans. Even the great apostle was actually not told precisely what to do or, or how to do it. He, he formed his own plans and ambitions, and many of these, as you know, did not come to pass. Paul had, nevertheless, brought the good news of salvation to the Gentile world, as he says here, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum, by the way, is the west coast of the Balkan Peninsula, modern Albania, Serbia, Bosnia. Um, Between Jerusalem and Illyricum, you can now find the churches that Paul had founded throughout the Gentile world. His message had been proclaimed. Strategic churches had been planted in all the provinces and in the great cities especially. And so it might sound strange for him to say that uh, he has no further place to, uh, well, the NIV has added here, rightly, to work in these regions, that uh, uh, Paul, Paul says, well, I'm, I'm pretty much done now from Jerusalem to Illyricum, so I want to press on. You say, done? I mean, couldn't Paul find anything to do in those regions? Well, you have to understand, Paul is a pioneer missionary, and, and he would plant the church which then, as a church on mission, had the responsibility, had been taught to sound forth the word, for example, as he says to the Thessalonians. These, these churches are now established, and it's their calling now to, to bring the word to their area in the surrounding region. And so Paul, as a pioneer missionary, must press on, let them do their work while he does his and also Expositor's Bible Commentary, there's a note here that we can really only understand this also in light of Paul's restless pioneer spirit. That is to say, even if he could take off for a while, he has this restless spirit to press on. And so there are plenty of good things that Paul could have done to strengthen the churches in Jerusalem to Illyricum. But now, in light of his gifts and his calling, he feels that the best thing that he can do is to press on to where Christ has not been named like Spain. And so you might likewise ask yourself, well, what is the unique contribution that I can make to the cause of Christ? And in light, yes, of my meeting with him, in light of being enlisted under his banner as a part of his kingdom of priests and his holy army, in light specifically of my gifts and my resources and the opportunities that are available and the needs of the world, Where can I best be used of God? Don't let good things crowd out the best way that God could use you. Paul had this restless pioneer spirit. He says, I I must be about this work, and I must be using the time to maximum effect. And so, without any further direction, Paul moved on. He planted a church. He moved on. He was a pioneer evangelist. That was his ambition now, according to his calling, shaped and guided by the word of God, 
to make it to Spain, where nobody would have heard of Messiah. How about you? Do you have a holy ambition? Well, have you met the Lord? Have you read his word? Have you considered your gifts and your abilities according to the best use now of your time and the needs of the world? This is how you gain a holy ambition to participate in this universal mission. So, my first point to you is how to gain a holy ambition. My second point to you from the passage is, in his will is our peace. In his will is our peace. But I must explain that, of course. It was the Scottish poet Robert Burns who famously wrote this in his poem, To a Mouse. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft agly. That is to say, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Paul had this well-laid plan to make it to Spain, to do what he had always longed to do. How did it turn out? Well, the following spring, of course, uh, in the company of several representatives of the Gentile churches, uh, he did uh, travel to Jerusalem with the gift of those churches for their Jewish brethren. It, uh, well, to cut a long story short, it was a wonderful trip. It was a tremendous help and encouragement to the church. But, of course, the visit did not end with Paul saying his tearful farewells and heading off to Rome, as Paul had planned, in order that he might be helped on his way to Spain, as he mentioned was his plan to the Romans here. If you remember history as it's then reported to us in those final chapters of Acts, Paul was rather arrested in Jerusalem on charges trumped up by his Jewish enemies, falsely accused. He was transferred by those authorities after there was an assassination plot to Caesarea on the coast, and Paul remained a prisoner of Rome for the next two years there, uh, held up by a corrupt ruler who wanted to bribe. And uh, he cooled his heels in a Roman jail in Caesarea. Rather, you think, a waste of time compared to what he had longed to do. It was rather a miserable way for such a man of drive and high purpose to spend his life and what could unquestionably have been put to better use, at least it seems to us. And then two years more, of course, under house arrest in Rome, and uh, then we have a rather dim sight of things after that. True enough, of course, there at Rome even, Paul was able to preach and teach under house arrest, but we, but we think how much more could have been accomplished if he were just free to fulfill the plans, the good plans that he had made to, to leave Jerusalem and to visit Rome and then for them to go off to Spain. Well, and to top it all off, Paul had prayed. We are sure he prayed very diligently. And uh, no doubt multitudes of his Christian friends prayed alongside, as he asks for in this very letter, that the Lord would bless these plans and extend the gospel westward. But those prayers for good things were heard very differently than when they were offered, and the very different events ensued than the ones he had proposed to the Lord. We, the text that we read from Romans 15 is this perfect expression of the Christian mind doing what it should do, having a holy ambition, planning, hoping, you know, eagerly anticipating, praying, and it reveals so much more to us, too, because 
we know that, well, other things came of those hopes, plans, and prayers. As T.S. Eliot put it, for us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And this is exactly right. Um, we, we are to have these holy ambitions. But the Christian life at the end ends up being an exercise in trying. We, we try. We try with our planning and our praying and our, and our working. And sometimes we succeed. Paul had gloriously succeeded so far. But I don't know why we don't. I don't know why you don't. The Lord has uses for our disappointments, of course. We know that. Our faith must be tempted and tried and all that. We know it. There must be tribulation. There is an unseen world who also sets itself against us and whose interests and issues are served by struggles of the saints. We know that too. Our Savior told us that disappointments would inevitably come and that we are often taught that the truest and most valuable faith is that which follows hard after Christ even in the face of disappointments and confusions and troubling developments, we, we, you know, we know all that. Still, we ask, Lord, why are we not more successful at what we are doing for the glory of your name? As children of God that we are, why are our prayers not more regularly answered according to the terms in which we have offered them? Why are our plans not more regularly fulfilled? Why would this great apostle with such a world-shaking ministry sit in jail, confined for years at the pinnacle of his powers and influence, that his great desire should not be recognized of the Lord and answered. Paul's plan, as he told us the Romans, seems to us surely to be the plan that the Lord would bless. But it was not to be, or at least it was not anything like the, like the, like the Paul had planned. Dante wrote a phrase, a sentence that became famous, it actually became the Prime Minister William Gladstone's motto. Dante wrote, in his will is our peace. Our peace doesn't come from our achievement, from our aspirations and desires and plans and things for God's glory being fulfilled, as wonderful as that is. In his will is our peace. And therefore, whether we succeed or fail, the fact that we have made these ambitions and endeavored these things, well, God is able to bless in his own way. You can come to terms with Romans 15, verses 23 through 33, if you've already read and believed Romans 1 through 11, and, and you have accepted that God's will is going to be done, that None has resisted his will, as we read in a previous chapter. No one can say to him, what have you done? From him and through him and to him are all things, but his ways are past finding out. Have a holy ambition, but recognize that God's will is perfect and holy and pleasing, however inscrutable. And then and only then will you be able to fully entrust your life and circumstances wholly to him, who loved you and gave himself to you, whether you are a great success or whether you're a failure, whether your deepest ambitions are fully realized or whether things have been rather disappointingly cut short. God has a higher purpose for you. 
And only then will you be able to understand the time of struggle that we are reading about here. In his will is our peace. In fact, we don't know if Paul actually ever made it to Spain at all. There's, frankly, precious little information to go by. Uh, It's simply impossible to say whether he realized his goal. Uh, Eusebius puts it this way in his great early church history in the 4th century. Rumor has it, he writes, that Paul resumed his ministry of preaching after his first appearing before Caesar. Uh, Seems to be some people that said that that they did, but they're basing it on other people. really a general general silence about that, so little can be said with confidence. Rumor has it. What is perfectly clear is this. Paul's carefully laid plans to visit Jerusalem and then to travel to Rome en route to Spain did not materialize, at least in any form similar to what he had envisaged and written, wrote to the Romans, as good as that sounded. And more than that, the prayers both of Paul and of the Romans. Such prayers as were asked for, as he describes in verses 30 through 32, though I didn't read it, though surely wonderfully answered, were answered in a far different manner than either Paul or the Roman Christians had anticipated or expected. Paul was spared from the unbelievers in Judea, as it is written, so it happened. But it came at the cost of two years in a Caesarean jail and then coming to Rome in chains, and then not leaving at least for a couple more years until he had an audience with Caesar. And we do not know if anything more came. We serve the Lord as we must. We have high ambitions as we ought. What was it that Carey said? Expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. And yet there is this balancing truth from the same passage here. In his will is our peace, you see. I thought I was going to be the mother of 15. I thought I would be in missionary service by now. I thought, all right, great to have such high ambitions. But you were no failure that those things did not come as you expected. Even for the apostle, they did not. Your peace does not come from getting your way. It comes from being in his will. In his will is our peace. Third, more hopefully, I hope, do it for him. Do it for him. God's care and provision for his beloved children is not bestowed as we expected it to be. Troubles and disappointments of every kind continue to plague even the most faithful and fruitful of believers. We pray, but many of our prayers are not answered immediately, at least, or not in the way that's easily detected by us, right? That that things are not answered in the way we hoped or expected. And this does seem to be the experience of every Christian. We think that this ought not follow our discovery of God, of his love and power, that our coming to faith and in his family would, would would have made things so much more wonderful There is some disappointment to be had. It's always been this way. Paul was a favored man. Paul himself had seen the exalted Lord Christ. He had heard his voice with his own ears. He had later been granted some vision of heaven. What a life he lived, despite all those blessings. 
He had a life full of accomplishment, but also of affliction, of pain and loss and disappointment. Along the way, he had his own personal struggles. And everyone else around him recognized that Paul, like, like us, had to make his plans in the dark and chart his course and pray that the Lord might bless what he was doing. Kent Hughes writes, I, I personally think it, it does not matter whether he made it to Spain. And here is why. First, God knew Spain was in Paul's heart just as much as it was in David's heart to build the temple, though that king never saw a stone of it laid. Secondly, the value of a dream is not whether we achieve it or not, but in setting out to achieve it. This has been a great lesson for me personally, he writes, God is not so much interested in whether we reach our destination as in how we try to get there. To us, arrival is everything, but to God, the journey is the most important. For it is in the journey that we are perfected, and it is in hardships that he is glorified as we trust in him. Well, as, as our preacher said this morning, it sometimes it's hard to bear. Maybe, maybe this will help if I illustrate it to you this way. The wife of a director of Wycliffe's, uh, for Wycliffe Bible Translators uh, told this story. When we came to South America many years ago, we were assigned an Indian tribe and began translating the scriptures into their language. She goes on to explain the difficult process that this entails, first of learning a spoken language and developing an alphabet and a written language and, tr and then translating the scriptures and then teaching the people to read. Uh, although it's somewhat quicker today with the use of computers, it used to take about 20 years to produce a Bible translation. It's a long and tedious job. Anyway, the director's wife continued, <clears throat> Mrs. Mills. She, we, we lived at the Indian village and spent as much time with the people as we could. We were teaching the scriptures to them as they were translating, as we were translating. A church was being born in their midst. As we came toward the end of the project, the people were becoming more and more involved in the production of drugs and less and less interested in the scriptures. And when we finished the translation of the New Testament in their language, and scheduled the dedication service. Not one person even came. I have been so angry and bitter. We gave our lives so that they could have the Word of God in their language. When we concluded what was almost a life's work, they didn't even want it. I have not been able to handle the bitterness of this disappointment in my heart. But she said with regard to the ministry of the word that was happening that week, God has now been speaking to me in these days by his word and his spirit. He has been doing something beautiful in my heart. It is as though God has been washing his word over my soul and healing me. And he has opened my eyes to see all of this from his perspective. I am just beginning to realize now that we did it for him. We did it for him. This is the only thing that makes any sense of all of this. We did it for God. And Mrs. Mills concludes, the only thing that makes any sense in this ministry, we do it for him. 
whether they succeed, whether they fail. It's not about the plans. It's, it's not even about the people that you're seeking to bless. You're doing it for him. And, you know, to, 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 the, to the couple that has given their lives for a translation that was completely ignored, they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, it was so much easier for people in your position when the tribes eagerly received the word. But now, says the Lord Jesus, you know just how I felt when I went to my home synagogue. Enter into the joy of your Lord now. The only thing that makes sense in any ministry, we did it for him. It's not a tragedy when a life is spent or even lost in his service. It is a triumph. And in conclusion, the main point of this sermon, as I said, is for us to gain a a holy ambition to serve the Lord beyond what we might now ask or think, to pursue it in in a reasonable and understanding and tempered way recognizing that it is all for him. I would like to point out here that there is one more thing in the passage as Paul goes on to ask the church to join him in his great work. For example, verse 30. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Well, he recognizes, he is this great apostle, this, this man with such a formidable mind, with such a successful ministry, says, please, agonize, literally, here. Strive together with me in this work. Please join me. Because, you know, we're, we're not going to be the ones probably in, in Saudi Arabia, in, in India, Pakistan. We, don't ha- we may have such ambitions. We may like to be able to do such things. We may find ourselves unable even. But there is something here for us that those people who are pursuing such things and have such ambitions, they, they need us to agonize in prayer for them also. One more illustration as we close here. I would like to tell you about the early ministry of Dwight L. Moody and how this rather unusual and obscure man came to prominence as an evangelist. Moody was, of course, a shoe salesman, uh, also taught a boys' class in Chicago, He was uh, there at the time of the great Chicago fire and so forth. Um, Well, anyway, he he decided that uh, after some of his uh, early preaching and early struggles that that he would go to England for a rest. He, He just wanted to rest. He didn't want to preach. He wanted to go hear Charles Spurgeon preach, as a matter of fact. He he wanted to hear George Mueller and, and some others. But uh, one Sunday, he was invited to preach in a congregational church in the north of London, and, and he accepted. And Moody spoke on Sunday morning, and it did not go well. Uh, Moody said that he had no power, no liberty, 
It seemed like pulling a heavy train up a steep grade. It was so bad, in fact, that he said he tried to get out of preaching the evening service, which he'd also agreed to. He's going to preach morning and evening. And he said, uh, I, I really need you to take this back. And the minister said no. He wouldn't let him off. <laughs> Came back in the evening. It, it, it was quite different. Moody felt unusual power. And when he got to the end, he decided to give an, an invitation to this unusually large crowd. He, he asked all who wanted to accept Christ to get to their feet, and about 500 people did. And, and Moody thought there must have been some mistake. Maybe they didn't understand him. Maybe he's American accent or something, right? So he asked them all to sit down. And he said, now after this meeting, there's going to be an after service in the vestry, and I invite all who are serious about receiving Christ to come to that meeting. And when the service was over, the people streamed through. Who are all these people, Moody asked the pastor. Are, are they yours? Some of them are. Are they Christians? Not as far as I know, was the reply. And Moody went into the vestry and repeated the invitation in even stronger terms, and the people all at once began to express their willingness to be Christians. And, and Moody thought there must still be some mistake. He said again, I have to go to Ireland tomorrow, but your pastor will still be here. If you really mean what you have said, come tomorrow night and meet with him again. And, and Moody went off to Ireland. And a few days later, he received a telegram from the minister saying, there were more people here on Monday night than on Sunday. A revival has broken out in our church, and you must return from Ireland to help me. And so Moody did return, and what happened in those days became the basis for a number of invitations in England and back to England, then over the world as an, as an evangelist. And that alone is, of course, a remarkable story. But but here's the rest of the story. There were two sisters, members of that London church, one of whom was uh, invalid, confined to bed. And after the morning service at which Moody had preached, uh, her healthy sister came home and said that a Mr. Moody had been there, uh, the American preaching in the morning. Mr. Moody of Chicago, asked the sister. I, I read about his evangelistic work in the newspaper, and I've been praying that he would come to London and that God would send him to our church. And if I had known, if I had known that it was he who would be preaching this morning, I would have eaten no breakfast and had spent the time praying instead. Now leave me alone. Don't let anyone in to see me. I am going to spend the rest of the day and evening fasting and in prayer. And it was, of course, that evening that, that the... Spirit convicted this huge crowd from this shoe salesman's words. And this invalid's prayers were abundantly answered. Strive with me, says. Agonize. That these plans, however they are fulfilled, however these great ambitions of these who are going out to the ends of the earth, however they should be fulfilled, strive that Christ would bless for his sake. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled at how it has pleased you to raise up a, a generation of fishermen to be your ambassadors to the world and so to bless them that they would turn the world upside down, that even one with such a formidable mind as Paul, although apparently very unimpressive in speech, nevertheless, one who had found his work so effective might 
at the next moment find himself uh, completely at the mercy of heathen rulers. We, we do not understand these things. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who's ever given that you should repay? Truly, Father, from you and through you and to you are all things. Give us great ambitions. Give us grace to rest in however you might be pleased to fulfill them. But know, great Father, that it is to you that we offer ourselves.